We're in this series um, called Surprised by God, and this, uh, this particular uh, sermon comes from chapter 5, which Kira read to us this morning. Um, mortal enemies of the Israelites at the time in history that we're talking about were the Philistines. The Philistines were a coastal nation. They were the only ones in the region at the time that had iron. And they also created monopoly on iron and sharpening iron. So if you had an iron instrument of some sort and you needed it sharpened, you had to go to the Philistines to get it sharpened. And the reason was the Philistines wanted to control the power, the military power in the region. And that's how they did that. Gerald, uh, Gerald Neufeld, commenting about this text that we're looking at today, uh, calls it when God goes on vacation, which I think is kind of an interesting sort of take on the text. <clears throat> and he's really talking about how Israel had to have felt at this particular moment in history. Because where was God? Why were the Philistines whipping up on them? Uh, they, they felt beleaguered and betrayed, and a lot of it, all of it really, had to do with where they were historically as, as people committed to God and doing what God wanted for them. They had just gone through a roller coaster period in their history. So they had come to Canaan. They had done partially what God had asked them to do, took over the land, were in the early stages ruled by Joshua, but after the death of Joshua, Joshua was a great leader and very capable military man, but after his death, they were ruled by a series of people that we call the judges. So in the Old Testament, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, which is about taking over the land, and Judges, which is about this period that I'm talking about. And throughout Judges, you'll see the same thing happening over and over and over again. Every judge, it seems like the same story multiplied. The people will start with a judge. They'll be doing great. Their relationship with God will be great. They'll pray and do what God wants them to do. And then they start paying attention to the culture and they fall into becoming like the culture and being as pagan and awful as you could imagine. And then their enemies come in and start beating up on them. And they start screaming to God, Oh, we, we're sorry. We repent. And there'll be this great national repentance and their relationship with God will be restored. And then they start listening to the culture and they start slipping down into the valley again. And then they start screaming out to God again and their relationship is restored. And that's the way it goes throughout Judges. The whole story. Samuel, which is the prophet about whom the book of First Samuel is written is the last of the judges. Uh, and he ends 
the period of the judges. So Samuel is the last of the judges. There are no more judges after Samuel. And I have to say that the times are not improved, even though Samuel is a great man, the times are not improved. They're, they're just as bad as they ever were. And in the course, in, the, in this history, in this period of time, God tells Samuel, I'm about to do something that is going to make everybody's ears tingle. Last week we alluded to that a little bit, but I want to talk more about that. I think you could say that the attitude of the Jews at this particular period of time is that God is sort of like an amulet. Do, do you know what an amulet is? Uh, an am, do you know what talisman is? Both, they're both the same thing. A talisman or an amulet is something that you wear around your neck. Uh, you believe that it has some sort of magical, nearly magical powers. So a uh, rabbit's foot is an amulet or a talisman. And they have this view of God sort of like this thing that you hang around your neck. You know, you rub your magic talisman and you get what you want rather than a relationship with this God. So I, you can see evidence of this in, in the Bible. Rachel steals her father's household gods and puts them under her saddle because those household gods, they believed, imported uh, some sort of protection, some sort of power. They were deeds to the property. Having those gods gave you a leg up on life. So that's why her father, Laban, is upset when he finds his household gods missing because they've kind of taken away his potency, his power, his, his ability. Uh, when Israel... Uh, becomes fearful because the Egyptians are coming after them, they cry out to uh, Aaron. Actually, this is when Moses is on the mountain, pardon me, uh, receiving the Ten Commandments. They're fearful of the noise on the mountain, and they say to Aaron, make a god for us to go before us. And they create this golden calf. When Moses, uh, with the people in, in the wilderness, is confronted by them being bitten by snakes and dying, at the instruction of God creates this golden serpent. And the instruction is, look at the serpent whenever you've, you're, you've been bitten and your health will be restored. Well, it got them through that crisis, but guess what? They turned it into a god and they started worshiping it. Again, because of this amulet thing. And now in 1 Samuel, we have a nation that connects national security with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is not the boat that Noah built. When it says ark, it's not talking about that. It's talking about this little piece of furniture 
And in this little piece of furniture, this little chest with carrying rods on the side of it, were the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod or staff, and a pot of manna, the bread that Israel got in the wilderness. These three things in this Ark of the Covenant. And they carried it around with them in the wilderness. And wherever the ark was, they assumed God was. God's protection. God's approval of them as a nation. These are all really good examples of this sort of amulet talisman believing that we people do. In Jeremiah, there's one more. In Jeremiah, the people believed that they had the temple, and therefore they had God's approval and always God's presence. As long as they could look up there and see the temple, everything was okay. And they had a saying in Israel. The saying was this, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I think, personally, it's sort of like what politicians say, God bless America. God bless America. It's the same thing. We think that by uttering the words or having the amulet that we're accorded some sort of special place. If you take apart the reason for this, it boils down to three beliefs that we human beings have. And the first is that we can control deity. I've become more conscious of this as I've listened to people talking about praying that uh, sort of almost using language like forcing God to do something because we're praying for it. I think that's wrong-headed. I don't think you ever find that sort of attitude uh, reflected in Scripture, that I can force God to do something by my prayers. Another is that human beings can understand deity. Uh, the, the The more I think and the older I get, the less I believe I understand God in the sense of sort of having him in a box. I don't. Sometimes when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking about God and, and trying to figure things out in my life, I, more often than not I come away scratching my head saying I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, Peter Rollins wrote a book called How Not to Talk About God. I, I love the title of that book and I think it, it really captures the mystery and the depth and the breadth and the majesty of this God that we worship and believe exists. And my finite little human pea brain can't wrap itself around that. I just can't. Um, I I call this uh, Rorschach theology. Uh, uh, Rorschach is the inkblot test, you know, and so you look at this ink blot and you say, oh, it looks like a rabbit. And another person says, oh, it looks like a cloud or it looks like a Ferrari or, you know, whatever it looks like. And I, I just can't put my head around it. I have uh, 
good friends that uh, John, well into his 40s, uh, well, not well into his 40s, but in his early 40s, I still hadn't had a child and couldn't have a child. So they did the... Uh, what am, I, I lost my word. They they went through all the process of trying to do insemination and and uh, you know in vitro. Thank you very much and uh, you know all that stuff. No kids. Well-meaning friends, proposing to know the mind of God, came to them and said, "Oh, God doesn't want you to have a kid." Really? John and Devon now have two lovely children from their own bodies without any assistance. And, you know, it's, it's not that... Uh, it's not that you want to not have faith in God. That's not my point. But to speak for God can be a dangerous thing. And to say, I know absolutely what God is thinking. And that was, I think, one of the errors of, of Israel. We have the temple. The temple's here. God's going to be with us. And the third is that the future will be like the present or the past. The future will be like the present or the past. So later in... Uh, Israel's history, especially during the time of Jeremiah when they're saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they're saying times are going to continue like the times of David in the past. It was, a, it was glory days for Israel. Glory days. Things were going wonderful. It was like 2007 in Merced. You know, building going on and boom town. Everybody's going, yeah! And then 2008 hit. And so Israel, uh, the downside, see, of all of this is that their relationship with God was based on God as an amulet, as something that, that they, they could rub and kind of get what they wanted versus a real relationship with God that said, I, I eat and sleep and breathe and think God. Not that I ever fully comprehend him. I don't. But he consumes me and governs my life. And they didn't have that. Well, back to Samuel. This is really a funny story to me in, in some respects, what Kira read to us this morning. Philistines were mortal en enemies. There's this battle going on. Phineas and Hophni, who are the sons of Eli. Remember last week we talked about how evil Eli was or how evil the boys were and what a bad father Eli was. And so uh, Hophni and Phineas are killed in this battle. First bad thing that happens. And then Eli dies, falls over backward, breaks his neck, dies. To make bad matters worse, Eli's daughter-in-law dies in childbirth. 
I mean, it's just like one bad thing after another. And if you ever believed that the magic talisman of the ark was going to get you something, this was the time to quit believing that. So, to add insult to injury, the Philistines, after whipping up on the Israelites, steal the ark. They steal the ark. They steal the thing that represents God's presence in the nation. They steal the thing that in Israelites' minds represents power and success and a future and all of that sort of stuff. It's gone. And the Philistines take it and put it in the temple to Dagon. Dagon was their god. So if you went in the temple, there was this big statue of Dagon sitting there. This is where it gets funny. Next morning, guess where Dagon is? He's on his face on the floor. Philistines say, whoop, little earthquake, put him back up. I think it's funny that human beings have to put Dagon back up. Do you see the humor of that? Next morning, they come in the temple just to make sure they got the point, Dagon's head and limbs have been severed and are laying in pieces. He's laying in pieces on the floor. And the Philistines said, ah, we got to get rid of the ark. And so they create this brand new cart and put two cows with it and, and send it off. Because they don't want this talisman in their nation. It had nothing to do with the talisman. It had everything to do with their relationship with God. I think um, the story, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, incidentally it's the Ark of the Covenant that they're looking for, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark is a good, really good, kind of funny, sort of popular view of what it looks like when you regard these things in a talisman-like way. And so the Nazis think if they can possess the ark, they can really possess power and all the stuff that goes with it. When they open it up, you remember what happens? Everybody dies. You can't capture God. So the people of Beth Shemesh, which is the first place that the ark goes on this little cart, see it coming and they said, oh, wait a minute, we don't want the ark talisman. So the ark goes on down the road and it comes to Kiriath-Jearim and the people of Kiriath-Jearim says, oh, the ark! And it stayed there for 20 years. They took care of it. 20 years. And it's not until David becomes king that it's rescued from Kiriath-Jearim and brought into uh, the center of Israeli life. The ark was meant to be a reminder of times and events in Israel's history that had been important to them. It was to be a reminder of this relationship that they have with God in the same way that the Lord's Supper is. You don't, you don't take away pieces of the Lord's Supper and 
put them in your cabinet at home, do you? Of course not. You, you know that it's been given as, as a way to remind us of relationship and connection and not as a, a talisman that hangs around our neck. When I was in uh, Lubbock, I served at a large church of about a thousand members. And uh, at the time of the Lord's Supper, uh, we had a group of people that would, the Lord's Supper would occur roughly in the center of the worship service. And we had this group of people, just like clockwork, they'd eat the Lord's Supper and then they'd leave. Really? talisman. You know, I'm, I'm going to get the, the magic sauce. And the elders of that church, I finally moved it to the end because they, they thought it was important for people to be there and to be for, there for all of worship because this was about relationship with God. Right? And I, I think that's that's why we do this. Uh, it's because we, re, we remind each other that, that what really counts is this vertical relationship that I have with my father. He's not a slot machine. You know, I don't go up and pull the magic arm on the slot machine to get what I want. I, I go because I want relationship. That's what Israel didn't get. I think that the takeaway from this text is that God wants your heart. That's what he wants. He doesn't want your superstition. He, he doesn't want you to think that you can bottle him like Pepsi or you can wrap him up like a Christmas gift. Because you can't. And just when you think you start to understand him, he'll surprise you. Something will happen, and you'll go, wait a minute, that's not what I thought was going to happen. Sometimes he will disappoint you. Psalms are full of disappointment. God, where are you? Why, why are you letting my enemies beat up on me? That's all throughout the Psalms. Well, it's not that God was telling the enemies necessarily to go beat up on somebody. But he was working in, in that person's life and in, in history in a way that they didn't expect. We derive benefits not from this, not from the amulet, but from being a child of God by wearing his name, by being in relationship with him by inviting him into our lives and allowing him to transform us, that's where the benefit comes. And, you know, I may not live in a five-bedroom house. I may live in a one-bedroom house. God never promised me the five-bedroom house. But what he did promise me was relationship with him. That's what he promises. So you can't package God... Don't assume that, you know, by rubbing the thing hanging around your neck that God's going to do stuff for you.
Let's pray. Dear Father, God of Israel and Philistia and Merced, you and you alone are worthy to be worshipped. You and you alone are the God who can answer the longings of our heart and who can turn irreverence on its face. You who will not be contained or controlled. Help us to know you in the limited way that we can. May we not be guilty of assuming that we've got you in a box. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.